I'll be reading Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who is not who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I would love it if you would turn with me to Psalm 124. You're going to want your scriptures open as we look at this passage this morning. Uh, Psalm 124 is really a, a song a sermon in song form. It's a sermon that's all ready to preach. It's such a good sermon. It follows on Psalm 123 and 123's cry for mercy. As we're working our way through this series, Songs for the Journey, a study through Psalm 120 through 134, these beginning psalms are a cry out to the Lord for help on the journey, the approach to worship his name with the congregation. Last week was a great cry for mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Today, we have a central theme, a central theme that is restated twice, verse 2 and verse 8. If you're following along with me, you'll see it. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, oh, what catastrophe there would be. Or restated in verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. That's the central point of the psalm, and so it's the central point of the sermon. This psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving and confidence in the Lord for a people on the journey to see him. The sermon has two main points, two main points whose purpose it is to to build the case for the main point, the two Main points, the two subpoints that build the case are verses 3 through 5 and verses 6 through 7. Look at them with me. The 3 through 5 are an argument that if it hadn't been for the Lord, the enemy would have swallowed us up alive. All right? It's stated in a different way then in verses 6 through 7. We've escaped like a bird from a snare. Okay? Those are two, both points backing up the main idea that the Lord is our help. Now, the great thing about this psalm is that the two main supporting points are really just two ways of saying the exact same thing. Really, every good sermon does the same thing. It has one thing to say and then says that one thing in different ways to call the congregation, all of God's people, to hear the main idea. Today, the main idea is the Lord is our help. For that reason, the psalm begins, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel say. It's a call to the people to see the main idea and enter and to participate in that reality of the psalm. That if it had not been for the Lord who was our help, we would be done for. It's an opportunity in this psalm for the whole of the congregation to participate in a confession. So let us participate together. 
with our eyes, with our minds, with our hearts, with our prayer as we give attention to this psalm. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we as a people together would give attention to your word, that this study would become a song, a song that the people are called into saying and singing, that our response would be, Lord, this is true. This is true. You are our refuge and help. You who are maker of heaven and earth. Lord, buoy our confidence and increase our thanksgiving. In other words, Lord, I ask that you would give us faith. Give every one of us faith and the people of God together faith to walk in light of God who is our help. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this. We trust you for the help, the gift of faith as well. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to walk through the passage just as it's found. The passage begins with this statement. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. The psalm is a call for participation. So I hope you'll participate with me in giving attention and faith to this passage. You, the people, are called into and to enter into the reality of this psalm. And the right response to this psalm, what this psalm expects of the people of God is something like, ah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know it. Let Israel now say, yeah, we are ready to say, if it hadn't been for our Lord, if it hadn't been for His help, we'd be gone for. But we know a whole different reality. Eugene Peterson offers these words, the people who know this psalm best and who have tested it out, who've used it often. Have you ever thought of using a psalm? taking hold of it, walking, speaking, believing, singing, praying, as though it were real. That is, the people of God who are travelers on the way of faith, singing it in all kinds of weather, tells us that it is credible. And there are many who have sung this psalm. That it fits into what we know of life lived in faith. Friends, if you have walked in the faith for any time at all, you know this psalm. You know it by heart. It's not difficult when the psalmist says, let Israel now say, let the people of God who are called by His name, who are rescued by His help, who know the name Yahweh, let that people say, and we say quickly, ah, this is true. You people of God know the reality of this psalm. You know what it is to hear the snap of the, the fowler's snare and wonder, how in the world am I still alive? And how in the world am I still flying? Let's get into the context for just a moment. Let's pay attention to the words of the psalm. The psalm actually begins with a song of sense of David. This is a psalm of David. David we're not told what the exact scenario was that he was going through when he wrote this psalm, presented it to the people. We're not told exactly the scenarios in which it was sung at later dates. But we do know that David often went out to battle against the Philistines and many others. And I, I, I want to try to imagine this. I, I want you to see why 
the psalm of David became a corporate psalm. You see, what happens when David went out with his army and went up against the peoples who rose up against the people of God, one of the things that happened, no matter the victory of the battle, no matter what the reports were from the front, some Israelite soldiers died. It's true. But David and Israel were so very often victorious against the people who rose up against them. But it doesn't change the fact that some Israelite soldiers died. So here is the key question about inviting a whole people. Let Israel now say, here's the problem with inviting people to sing this psalm. What about the dead soldiers? What about the poor widow whose husband perished in the victorious defense? Do they sing the psalm? Let me suggest that the answer is no, and the answer is yes. No, rather, the widow turns to other psalms, and there are other psalms to turn to. The widow turns to psalms of lament, Turn to psalms of, oh Lord, have mercy. And you don't have to say, oh, let Israel say. Says it easy. Psalms of comfort in affliction. There are other psalms to turn to, and she does. But the answer is also yes. The people among whom they are numbered, even the soldier and his remaining family, The people among whom they are numbered have been preserved. They have escaped the enemy who have sought to swallow them all. And for that reason, even this widow says, if it hadn't been for the Lord, all of us would be gone. The people of God would be destroyed and there would not be no refuge. There would be no worship. Praise be to God that He is our help. Rescue, rescue, help, is that God preserves whole people. The people as a whole. Not one is missing from among the people. Not even that soldier remains among the people of God. And the whole people receive the whole of the promises that are set aside for the whole of the people of God. And so, All, whether in affliction or rejoicing, can still say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, the whole of us would be swallowed alive. Now, there is something that I found to be really amazing in this psalm. Right at the beginning, it's stated twice in verses 1 and verse 2. Look at the words that it actually says. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. I think that is an invitation to imagine no mercy. If, let's say, let's consider the condition, the scenario, the reality where the Lord was not on the side of the people, where the Lord was not help, what help would we have had had it not been for the Lord? It's an if-then statement. One commentator calls this an unreal conditional sentence. It's say, imagine a world that does not exist. 
You know those alternate history movies, you know? Imagine a world where the Lord was not merciful, where the Lord was not a God of grace, where the Lord did not help a people who were called by His name. Imagine that world. Imagine a reality that is different than it actually is. And you and I ought to have a hard time imagining that reality because it's not reality. It's not really actually possible to imagine that reality. I can't imagine a reality where the Lord is not gracious or merciful because I can't imagine creation apart from the gracious giving of God of life. It's a a messed up world. We can't make sense of it. It doesn't make any sense. But imagine just for a moment that the Lord fails to help his people. Now, there are psalms that say the opposite. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. And this psalm then invites us to imagine the reverse. What if the Lord were not on our side? Well, the answer is, we would be afraid. We would be afraid. Now that's the if. Imagine... Imagine what it would be like if the Lord was not on the side of his people. What if he were not help? What if the God of heaven and earth did not reach out in mercy when his people cry out to him? And the, what follows in verses 3, 4, 5 are a response, an imagination of that world. And the psalmist lets his imagination run wild. Okay, Some of you are quite creative people and you're, you're imagining in your mind what it would be like if the Lord was not on your side, if the Lord was not help to a people who cry out to Him in mercy. This imaginative psalmist David imagines, well, one of the things in verse 3, then they, the people, would have been sw- the, the people who were enemies would have swallowed us up alive. What imaginative language. Swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. When the people rose up, so too would their gluttonous appetite. And it would end in our complete destruction. This is the disposition of a world toward those who are the Lord's people. I am concerned that we think that we can make friends with the world. That this is no longer a problem. We don't really have enemies who rise up against the people of God. There's this middle ground where there's nobody trying to swallow the people whole. We can't imagine that world, that the world is capable of growing tolerant of the people of true faith. And on the one hand, this is true. Imagine with me that there are a peoples of the world that have a generic cultural appreciation for basic morality that springs from the Christian worldview. A very basic Christian morality. And honestly, the fact that that is true is itself evidence or product of common grace. That God has made His way generally, generically attractive to all people. I mean, it's hard to get too upset at the fruit of the Spirit. Imagine love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Those are nice words. Who can argue against those words? Until love means love your enemy. Or joy means laying aside the joy in the things of the world to take up joy in the things that are eternal. Or goodness, goodness, everybody likes goodness. Goodness means a rejection of the evils of the culture. Or self-control stands in opposition to self-indulgence or autonomous freedom. Let me put it in another word. A world can stomach a general Judeo-Christian ethic. That's okay. But it has a harder time with a genuine following after the way of Christ. Perhaps part of our imaginations, of imagining a world where there was no God who was our help, is that we have a hard time imagining the way of God himself and his holiness. Perhaps one of the things we ought to stoke is our imagination, our wondering, and our wonder at the holiness of our God. We live in an odd time and place in history, an odd time. We have experienced very little of persecution in recent, and I was thinking in recent, in weeks, months, years, centuries in the West. Very little of persecution for centuries in the West. But perhaps that is because we have made a generic morality central to the testimony of the church. How will they know that we're Christians? Because we're generically gentle, basically self-controlled, highly generically moral, rather than the offense of the cross. And here's what the offense of the cross is. It outs every single one of us. The cross of Christ outs us as sinners in need of that radical work of grace. Not a generic forgiveness. Everybody knows, even those who love a generic goodness or patience, or kindness, or self-control. Everybody knows, everybody messes up sometimes, so you say, my bad. But the offense of the cross is my bad doesn't cut it with a holy God. That when we see Christ hanging on the cross, one of the things that we say is if it had not been that the Lord had been on my side, I would be dead. Dead. Crucified by a holy God. That's offensive to me. I don't like to think about that. I wonder how much we've lost our nerve until we realize he has been on our side. And he was on the cross. And friends, that is good news. Perhaps if this true Christianity were more central to both our life and our practice, we would find it not so implausible that a people would seek to swallow us alive. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, the fury of the enemies of the church is raised to the highest pitch. Nothing will content them but the total annihilation of God's chosen. Why? 
because of a hatred of the good news of Jesus Christ. A hatred of a compassionate God who chooses a people and makes a way for them to belong to him. Now, I want to just take a second, look at the poetry of the passage, verses 4 and 5. There is an idea that some of you may be familiar with. It's called a chiasm. Before you get too nervous, uh, a chi is, is a letter, and it's a cross, all right? And there is a, there's a cross-shaped or an X-shaped uh, metaphor, language in the passage. Look at it with me. It's beautiful to look at the poetry and just enjoy it for a couple minutes. Enjoy the scripture with me. Verse 5, here's the, the shape. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent, the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Do you see the poetry? This statement, A, B, B, A. It's beautiful poetry. This restatement of the reality. The flood would have swept us away. The torrent over us. Over us would have gone the raging waters. Here's what is the beauty. Why would, who cares about chiasms? We're just reading the Bible, right? I want you to enter into the poetry because in the poetry is some of the emotion that perhaps we need. Perhaps we need to feel this a little more. Read it again. A joy and appreciate the passion with which the psalmist writes and invites us to say. It's a poetic device that helps us to rehearse what would have been true if it had not been that the Lord is merciful. I want to share just a few things that I think are true from this passage to sort of summarize our time in the first half of this psalm. The first is this, the things that are true. I often do this when I'm reading the scriptures. It's, perhaps it's a, a practice that would be helpful to you when I've read the scripture and I've paid attention and I've made a lot of notes and I've just noticed things and underlined words and so on. I'll just step back and say, okay, what's true? What's, what do I know for sure is actually true According to this passage so far, I did this this past week, early in the week, and I wrote, the peoples, the enemies of God, want to swallow the people of God whole. It's true. It's in the passage. Secondly, simple, God is for his people. And I asked, what, what does that mean? What's the implication of those two statements? Therefore, There is no safe place in this world but among the people of God. For there I am most safe. Wait, 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 wait. Didn't you just say that the peoples of the world hate the people of God and now your conclusion is there's no safer place in the world to be than among the people of God? And the answer is yes, because of point two. God is for His people. I want to be no other place than in the target sites of the enemies of God, for in that place I am the most safe in the universe. God has promised and shown Himself to be keeper of His people. What safer place is there to be then in the most danger from every sling and arrow, every gaping mouth, every fowler's snare, for all these enemies are but nothing 
if God is for us. If God is for us, put that on the scales. Every weapon known to mankind pointed at the people of God. Oh, and God is their help. Do you see? I think David was asking the same question and coming to the same realization when he looked at Goliath, the greatest weapon of mass destruction known to the Philistines. And he said, this is a good place to be. Why Why exactly are we afraid of this guy? We are right where we should be. We have no more clearly been the people of God than in opposition to the people of the world who have risen up against us. Who knows what will happen when I go out there and sling a rock at that dude's forehead. It's big. I shouldn't miss. But this I know. The Lord is our help. He is on our side. Simple, easy math. The enemy won't prevail. We will be kept by the Lord. Simple. There are those who hate God, and then there are those who are rescued out from among them, called by his name. And the question is, where would you be? Where would you be? Where do you wish to be? I was discussing this on my front porch with my wife earlier this week, and she uh, prays through a a, a book and and a website that helps her to think through some of those who face trial around the world. And she noted that it is a very dangerous thing to become a Christian in Syria these days. A very dangerous thing. And so the question arose in our conversation, why in the world would someone become a Christian in Syria? And the answer is because for the person in Syria, even in the face of all the dangers that come if they are counted among the people of Yahweh, these peoples would swallow them whole even in the face of all those dangers, to become a disciple of Jesus Christ is to enter into the people of God. And there is no safer place than to dwell among the people of God and be counted among their number, on whose side, whose help is the maker of heaven and earth. To be a Christian is to take refuge in the safest place on the planet for a person in Syria. Now, I feel as though I may have been up to this point a bit too metaphorical, maybe even a bit too abstract. Let me put it this way. For the new believer in Syria, no matter whether they burn down their house and the house of their extended family, whether they shun his family, destroy his reputation, that new believer cannot lose what he has gained through faith in Christ and rebirth in his spirit, by his spirit. And so, perhaps what we have done is we have failed to imagine, call to mind what it is that that believer has. We just think, they get to go to heaven. They're going to get trounced around here, but they get to go to heaven. Friends, that is not enough imagination. We ought to imagine, we ought to search and believe what this believer has. Consider these. 
short among the long list. That believer has entered into the fellowship with the redeemed of God, entered into an eternal family as of the moment of faith. Neither height nor depth can separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The word of God is his comfort, a comfort to his mind, body, and soul. Previously, the word of God was an offense. But upon faith, the word of God becomes comfort. Perhaps why we can't imagine why you would want to become a Christian in Syria is because we have the word of God and we do not go to it for comfort. We can't imagine it because we haven't taken hold. The commandments of God are for the first time in history a sweetness to his taste, for they taste like the character of him who called him. It tastes, the commands of God taste like holiness. Not his holiness, but the holiness of the God who is his help. He has been given the gift of the Spirit and the gifts that accompany the Spirit, both to build up the church and share Christ with the lost. He had that. He did not have that prior to faith in Christ. Friends, that is an inheritance, a joy, and a gift of boldness that is afforded to the new believer. And not one of these things may be taken away from him, for they are granted to him and kept by him, for him, by his help, who is the maker of heaven and earth. One of my favorite songs, you've heard me quote it many times, Beautiful Eulogy, their song, Entitlement. Oftentimes, we trade temporal satisfaction for the things the genuine believer is entitled to. My concern is we have a hard time enumerating the list of things that the genuine believer is entitled to. Heaven, yes, obviously, we think. Is there anything that we've missed? I am convinced he says, that it's because we don't understand that there exists an order of benefits of redemption that is applied to his bride. We are far too quick to imagine this psalm simply and solely for the temporal and material benefits because our imaginations are too small. We often find all the material things in opposition to the help that the Lord has enumerated for his people. What are these deep, valuable, enduring benefits that are provided and kept for those who have taken refuge in the Lord? There is a community group question for you. I would invite you, join with your community group this week and ask, what is our help? We know his name. In what form has it come? And from that place, we all have rest. Now, I said that this passage is, is really two sub-points that support the main point, so I don't have to spend a long time on the second part. We'll look briefly at verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord. Really, that's the point. It's the point that the psalmist is getting at, is, is if we remember that the Lord is our help, we respond, blessed be the Lord. Thanksgiving is the point of the psalm. Who is he? Well, he is the one who has not given us as prey to their teeth. That's who is blessed. That is the Lord. 
The unreal conditional is just that. It is unreal. We have not been given as prey to their teeth. It didn't happen. So we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We We need no longer ask, what if it had been that the Lord was not on our side? For He is. And so the response of the people of God is, blessed be the Lord. He has not given us as prey into their teeth. Instead, he is, we've escaped. And the escape, to be clear, is like a bird from the snare. What did it look like? It looked like a sprung snare. The snare went off, but no dead bird. We have escaped, it says. Again, we have a chiasm. Look at it. Verse 7. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. From the snare, the snare is broken, we have escaped. He's amazed. He says it twice, the second time in reverse. He looks around and he says, we've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. It snapped, it popped, it, it broke. And it did not catch us. Friends, on this journey there will be many snares. Let's remember the position of the psalm is of the psalmist, is a position of one who is on a journey. It's a psalm for a people on the move, making an approach to the worship of God. On the road, there is much danger that would loom as though it would not only thwart the journey, make it difficult, but it would put an, an end to all of our hope to worship the Lord in the house of the Lord all together. Now, imagine with me. You're on this journey, and you hear a snap. And you know what it is. It's a metallic metallic snap. And it's the popping of the snare. And you know what happens next. In a matter of less than milliseconds, you're done. What do you think? What goes through your mind in that no time at all? You know what I'm talking about. You've heard the snap before. You thought, it's all over. You're terrified in a particular moment. And in that moment, all you can hear is death. And then, less than milliseconds later, you find yourself flying. And you're like, how in the world? All I could think of was death. And I'm still flying. As far as our imagination goes, we failed in that immediate moment to call to mind the Lord is our help. But when we do, what do we say? Blessed be the Lord. If the goal of our journey is to see the Lord, then a confrontation with our enemies with disaster, is nothing to fear. As we preserve and persevere, and as we are preserved by the Lord, according to His promises, we grow as a people who bless the name of the Lord. Remember, what's the goal? Worship of the Lord. What happens along the way? Repeatedly rescued. What happens when you get there? Our worship is increased and higher than it would have been at the beginning. Friends, 
the snare that is set by our enemy is working to the worship of our God. You tell me that the Lord does not work all things for the good of those who love him. He's working worship in his people, which is our goal. We want to worship him. How will the trials of our lives, the trials of the people of God, how will the trials of the church together cause us to increase as a people of worship? The passage ends with verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord. It's where everything has been going. It's the conclusion of the matter. No more imagination of alternate realities. It's a simple statement and confession of what is real. Our hope is in the name of the Lord. Who is that Lord? Man, he's, he's the maker of heaven and earth. We're going to see that over and over again. That the psalmist has us call something to mind when we think of the one who is our help. You could have named other beings who are my helpers, and I'd say, hmm, confidence not buoyed. But if you say, (laughs) your help is in the name of the Lord. Oh, by the way, made heaven and earth. The most clear application of this passage is twofold. There is no help but the Lord. Who else might help us but the Lord? Certainly, we may not help ourselves. The second application is just like it. The help of the Lord is perfect and sufficient. He is, after all, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, the Lord bless you and keep you, that it's pronounced over the people of God, is really a, a confessional statement. It is a prayer, but it's a prayer that believes that this is true. The Lord bless you and keep you. It means that no matter what happens this week, no matter what snares pop, the Lord will preserve His people. The people will remain. The Word will be preached in your household and among the people of God, wherever we may even be dispersed. The Word of God will be true for the people of God. And we will receive it with faith. There will be a people. And that people will be united by faith. There will be the whole of the fruit of the Spirit active among a people. The Lord bless you and keep you. This is true, no matter what snares pop. There will be a people equipped with the armor of God. Does that sound like good news? Does that sound like help? There will be an inheritance set aside for a people. Friends, how do we know that the Lord is on our side? We have something greater than even a remembrance of the time that David slew Goliath. We have the very ground upon which is built our every hope. That the maker of heaven and earth came to dwell among us. He alone was righteous and died in our place. And we look at that and we say, the Lord 
The Lord alone is our help. No one else could have done what He did. I have utterly failed to be holy like He is holy. And He clothed His people with grace, forgiveness, and His righteousness. And we say, in the righteousness of our God is our help. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Friends, we have so much to call to mind. So much ground for the sufficiency of our hope. That is the second community group question. And really it's a community group instruction. Go and recount the ground of our help. Remember that the battle has been fought and He's risen victorious. And He's not only maker of heaven and earth, He's king on the throne. The lion-like Lamb of Judah on the throne of heaven, blessing and keeping His people. And the snare pops. And what do you think? What do you think? Train yourself today. Think. Our help is in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, I'm not sure if he's quoting someone else or if he wrote this, he just offered a paraphrase of the psalm. And I just want to read this sort of restatement of the song in closing. Had not the Lord, my soul may cry, had not the Lord been on my side, had, not, had He not brought deliverance nigh, then must my helpless soul have died. Had not the Lord been on my side, my soul had been by Satan slain. And Tophet opening large and wide would not have gaped for me in vain. Lo, floods of wrath and floods of hell in furious, impetuous torrents roll. Had not the Lord defended well, the waters had o'erwhelmed my soul. And when the fowler's snare broke, the bird escapes on cheerful wings. My soul set free from Satan's yoke with joy bursts forth and mounts and sings. She sings the Lord her Savior's praise. Sings forth His praise with joy and mirth to hear to Him her song in heaven she'll raise. To Him that made both heaven and earth. May we learn that song by heart. Heavenly Father, if we would learn this song, we will experience what Your Word has consistently been clear that we would experience, which is many snares, many tribulations, much trial, some from without, but even much from within. And every time, may we, when we find ourselves still flying, still helped, still blessed, still kept, among the people of God, may we sing and rejoice in the increase that you have given to our hearts of worship. Teach us your worship by heart. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, our sufficient help in time of need. Amen.